Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. That's easy to say, our Father. Sometimes it's hard to come to grips with. Uh, sometimes, Lord, we get very, very disappointed because the plans we have had for our lives have been different than what you had planned for us. Uh, when we're young, we have our hopes and dreams and aspirations and we have our goals and our objectives and all these things and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to not have any setbacks and we're going to uh, achieve this and accomplish this and in our youthfulness, we never factor in uh, our own sinfulness, our own failures, uh, our lack of experience. We just assume it's all going to go according to our plan. And when it doesn't, oftentimes we find ourselves angry with you. But Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Lord, the fact is, we all uh, have had plans for our own kingdom. But we wanted our kingdom to look like. We've all done that. We've all tried to set ourselves up as kings of our own lives. That never works. We always wind up in a ditch somewhere. And that's a lesson that uh, I've never met a guy who's learned it the easy way. We all seem, I bet you every guy in this room has had to learn that one the hard way. And we're still learning it. Not my kingdom come, thy will be done. Not, not my will be done, but thy will be done. So Lord, Sometimes you put the brakes on our plans and our hopes and dreams. Sometimes you are the one who interrupts our plans. You are the one who dashes our plans. I remember John Newton saying that, that is, it is a mercy when you disrupt our plans and even deny our plans. Because we, we, we think that's the place of happiness, and we think that is the best place for us to be. And oftentimes the places we want to go would be the very worst for us. You know all this, and we don't, because uh, you are our Father who art in heaven. You know all things. You made us, you created us. You're the sovereign God. You understand us, you hardwired us. You know everything about us. Inevitably, there are some guys here tonight, they're in a hard place, they're in a disappointing place in life, they never thought they would find themselves at this spot. I pray, Lord, you would help them to simply, and this is easy to say, but it's hard to do, I pray that you would enable them to simply submit, to get under your authority, to not fight you, but to welcome you and to not resist you, 
but to surrender to you. And simply pray that prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we say, and Lord, do that in my life. I trust you with my life. You know what's best. You know what I need. You know what would harm me. You know the places I'd like to go that I can't handle. So I yield to you. My times are in your hand. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me, the psalmist said. Put us in a place tonight of rest and of trust. We go about our work, we work hard, but the course of our lives we submit to you. Thank you for providing us with what we need, for giving us life and health and breath, provision to pay our bills. Thank you even, Lord, for the hard things that come that build character. It's hard to thank you for those things, but they serve a role and a purpose. Instruct us tonight. Make this time valuable. Thank you for these men. Their time is of value. We don't want to waste it. So may your spirit teach us is our prayer. And may we hear and may we do your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're doing uh, this semester, we're kind of doing a 25th anniversary, well, at least for me, it's the 25th anniversary. Here's what I'm doing. I am, this semester, I'm teaching through something that I've never taught through here consistently, and that's the book I wrote in 1989, 88, 89, it came out in 90, called Point Man. Uh, Point Man is a book to men on how to spiritually lead a family. It's Spiritual Leadership 101. Uh, 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 When we meet the Lord, he changes us. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. All things become new. We're spiritually dead. He makes us alive. He draws us to himself. Suddenly things we could never understand, we can understand. Because the things of God are spiritually understood. They are spiritually appraised. The natural man cannot discern or understand the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2. But when Christ comes into our lives, the scales drop off of our eyes as they did for Saul when he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And suddenly we see everything differently, as Saul did. Instead of persecuting the church, now he's in the church and he's preaching the gospel. So there is a radical transformation that takes place in our lives. And when we come to Christ and really, know, and really come to know Christ... Not know about him, but when we come to know him and he grips us and seizes us and brings us to himself and gives us faith to believe in him and to trust in him alone for our salvation. When we really embrace Christ and following Christ, then suddenly we have desires we never had before. And we start looking around and we think, gosh, I've got uh, I'm married. I've got a wife. I got kids. I got responsibilities with a family. And we start looking at that in different lights. And if you're a man, and I'm, I'm kind of rehashing what we have talked about here over the last few weeks. If you're a man who follows Christ, uh, this is where I came up with the term point man. Because you're in a battle. 
if, if you have a desire to love your wife and to love your kids and to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, as the scripture says, you're in a battle because everything in this culture is against you. The culture hates Christ. The world hates Christ. Therefore, it hates you if you're in Christ. So you're in a battle. Uh, I was in the shower. I was thinking about that there's a war on the family, and it struck me that if you're a husband and father, you're on the point. Uh, I try to stay up with the culture, so at least once a year, uh, maybe once every 18 months, I go see a movie in a theater. Uh, I just try to stay current. Uh, this past week, I fulfilled my pledge. I was about 18 months behind since that last. I usually don't go see movies uh, in theaters because uh, I got better things to do. And I, I try to watch what I put in my mind. But I went to see Lone Survivor. Mary and I went. We just wanted a quiet, restful evening together. <laughs> I'll tell you something, that, that, that's quite a movie and it's quite a book. Mary read the book, I haven't read it yet, but uh, it, it shakes you to the core, just the reality of what these young men do in putting their lives on the line. Um, it, it, it's really remarkable. And you're not too far into that movie and you see that of those men that were chosen on that mission, the assignments are given, are given, and one of them is to walk the point, is to be the leader of the small group of men. And there's a certain point where they realize they're really in trouble and they got themselves in, in, in a real quandary because, anyway, I won't give you the movie away except to say this. They're hashing around. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And one of the guys steps up and says, here's what we're going to do because, you see, he was the guy who was appointed to be the point man. Here's what we're going to do. And they all said, yes, sir. Uh, in the war on the family, God has appointed men to lead their families. We're responsible to God for our families. Now, whenever we start talking about this, guys immediately feel guilty. Because we've all fallen short. Because we all have had huge um, flaws. We, we, we're flawed men. And we've all made mistakes. And we immediately we begin scrolling back and looking over our lives. And, oh, gosh, I messed up here and I messed up there. And, gee, I'm sitting here and I'm divorced. And, you know, that, you know and this. And we all this guilt. The point of this is not guilt. The point of this, the point of this is for us, you know, Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. I don't know how many times I've said this in this Bible study, but I think one of the primary weapons the enemy has to neutralize men, and make no mistake about it, he wants to neutralize you in being a spiritual leader of your family. I think one of the primary ways that he neutralizes us is discouragement about our past. He keeps bringing up our past and our failures, and he brings them up, and what happens is we just lose heart because it's true. Oh, I failed here, I failed here. Every guy in this room has failed. But we have got to fight off the discouragement because the Lord doesn't want us looking to the past. He wants us looking to him. We fix our eyes on Jesus. He has redeemed us. He has paid for those sins. The past is the past. There's nothing you can do about it. But if you've come to Christ and repented, you've been forgiven of all sin. He not only forgets our sin, he forgives our sin. Put it behind you. Uh, the story is told of Robert E. Lee 
when he was, and, and guys, again, I just had a moment where I thought, did I just tell the Robert E. Lee story um, last week? Did I tell it three minutes ago? I, 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 I have no idea, but I'm gonna tell it again. I told it recently somewhere. So Robert E. Lee, after the war, head of the Southern Army, Confederate Army, he's on his horse, heading somewhere, comes through a plantation. The house is still standing, it survived, but as he's going by this plantation, stops to rest his horse, get some refreshment. Lady comes out, she says, General Lee, what a tragedy, sees this blackened stump in front of the plantation. And she starts telling him what a great tree this was. It had been there for 200 years. It was majestic. The house had built, you know, around it. It was just the hallmark of the family. It was the tr just the tree, the tree, the tree. And these northern soldiers came through, and it was shelled, and it's just a blackened stump, and she's going on and on. And he said, my dear lady, cut it down and forget about it. Now, that's what we have to do with our past. Cut it down and forget about it because Jesus took our sin upon him and Jesus paid it all. Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press on. Okay? We follow Christ. You follow me as I follow Christ. So, as, we, as we're doing this tonight, inevitably we hit some of this stuff, guilt comes up. Your guilt was put on Jesus. If you have trusted in Christ alone, you see? So we got to put on some armor even as we start this study tonight. Years ago, there was a book that came out. I remember reading this book at a coffee shop in Burlingame, California. I'm going to say right around 79, 80, maybe 81. Uh, I was six years old. Uh, anyway, I'm reading this book. And it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek book on manhood. One of the first books I can ever remember reading on manhood because there weren't a lot of books that came out. But the book was called Real Men Eat Quiche. No, it was called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. See, you read the book. You saw the movie. Yeah. Yeah, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. And the book, which, I mean, the guy, it, it sold a million copies. And there wasn't much to it because there was one phrase on each page, as I recall. It was one of those little books, you know, one phrase, turn the page, one phrase. Uh, here are some that, that I remember. Uh, real men don't eat quiche. Uh, real men don't buy flight insurance. You just get on the plane and go. That's a man. Uh, maybe one of my favorites was uh, real men don't call for a fair catch. And that's why when they hit their 60s, they can't even remember playing football. Because <laughs> they never did this, you see. We have all these fault conceptions about what it means to be a real man. Um, the world will lie to you about manhood. Uh, the world system will give you all kinds of wrong information about being a man. Uh, so we have to fight off these wrong ideas that we have heard growing up in this culture. Um, we are told that real men sleep around. Now, God, who created men, does not say that. 
We are told that real men are sexually promiscuous. God has a higher standard than that. Wilt Chamberlain, who was um, a superb athlete, I remember I stood next to him um, when he played for the uh, Warriors. Uh, I was, uh, how old was I? I was probably eighth grade. And he was walking out. Somehow I got positioned where he walked. I walked maybe three steps near him. Guy was, he, was a, he was just massive. Not just tall, but just built. No steroids, no weights, just an incredible specimen. He wrote a biography, autobiography, and in that book he claimed to have slept with 20,000 different women. Now why would a guy write a book about that? Because you see, he thinks that's manly. He thinks sexual conquest, obviously it was something he was proud about. And the book was pretty much about his sexual conquest. Is that manhood? Is that masculinity? Um, from God's perspective, and God always has a different perspective than the world, than what we're taught in the world system. Uh, you could say this. You could say real men don't sleep around. You could say God's men don't sleep around. God's men are not promiscuous. Uh, God's men, his real men, don't commit adultery. That's God's perspective. We're living in interesting times. Um, I've been reading David Wells' new book. David Wells is a theologian who is very unique. He is a theologian, and when he writes, you can understand what he's saying. Brilliant guy. And he comes out with a book about every eight, nine years. And then when he comes out with a book... And I, I pre-ordered his book on Amazon. When I heard he had a new book coming out, I pre-ordered it months and months ago. And I got two. Because usually someone wants a book, Mary or Josh or Josh, somebody wants a book, so I get two. And this week, I was excited because my two books came. And then the next day, two more books came. Because obviously, since I have short-term memory loss, I, I was so excited, I ordered it twice. <laughs> so I've got four books. If you want one, they're $800. <laughs> um, I'm reading his book. And he, he has done some books over the years, and one follows another, and he critiques the culture, and he critiques the church. Uh, the problem with reading Wells is I, I like to mark things, and when you read Wells, basically every other sentence is marked. Because when a guy takes eight to nine years between books, he's really thought about it when he writes. Um, and, and I'm going to put the brakes on and limit myself to just two paragraphs. I want to read pages, but I can't. Um, we've talked in here before about postmodernism. And this, this idea that there is no absolute truth, there's been a shift from, there's just been a shift in terms of how people think, the worldview of people. There's been a shift in this nation. Uh, we're at a place where we talk about postmodernism. Postmodernism believes that there is no meaning. It believes there is no creator. 
There is no design. There is no absolute truth. There are no absolute right and wrong. It's just what you determine to be right and wrong. I told you the story last week about Ravi Zacharias, uh, who's at Ohio State. And as he's with his driver, the driver said, this is, uh, see that building over there that we just put up at Ohio State? That's the first postmodern building in America. And he goes, well, it's a postmodern building. Well, the architect believed that there's no meaning, there's no truth, there's no absolute. So uh, there are uh, stairways that go nowhere in the building. Oh, this is true. Only on a university campus would they do such a thing. Um, for years, I have felt that there are more fools per square inch on a university campus than anywhere else in the world. And I'm not talking about the students. I'm talking about PhDs who say there is no God. Uh, the fool has said in his heart, the Bible says, that there is no God. So there are staircases that go nowhere. There are hallways that just end. So the building was designed by the architect with no meaning or structure or purpose. And Zacharias said, really? And the driver said, yes. And then Zacharias said, did he do the same thing with the foundation? And the answer, well, there was no answer. No, he, no, you better believe he didn't. <laughs> what a great comeback. See, the most important part of any structure is the foundation. The most important part of your life is the foundation of your life. Your family has a foundation. This church has a foundation. There are some churches that are built on the Word of God. There are other churches that used to be on the Word of God, but they've shifted I spoke in a church last month, and when they invited me, it's a long story, I almost didn't go, but Steve, there's a group of guys here that really are following the Lord. I said, yeah, but this denomination. Anyway, I, I went, and while I was there, I talked to this pastor, and we started talking, and he said, you know, Steve, um, he's I'm third generation pastor. He said, I was just born again uh, in 2008. I said, really? He started telling me his story. And then he started telling me what, what, what kind of earthquakes he's gone through in his church since he came to know Christ. Because you see, the church, when he went, was on a different foundation. But now that he's found Christ, he's not building on the sand anymore. He's building on the rock, and he's had people leave by the droves. You see, this happened, nations have foundations. So Wells is talking about the history of thought. We've talked about this recently. He says this. And, and he's talking about our view of God. Okay? How people used to view God, how we view God now. Uh, he says, right now there is a shifting of tectonic plates beneath our Western societies. It is the end product of at least two closely related mega changes that have been underway in our culture since at least the 1960s. They are first that in our minds we have exited the older moral world in which God was transcendent and holy. Okay? In other words, God used to be viewed as above us, beyond us. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115. Uh, uh, Psalm 103, uh, his throne is in the heavens, his sovereignty rules over all. So God is transcendent and God is holy. That was the old view. Wells goes on and says, 
but we have entered a new psychological world in which he is only imminent and he is only loving. Did you get that? So it's shifted instead of being high and lifted up. As Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter six, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and mighty lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and seraphim stood above him, each having six wings with two. They flew with two. They covered their face with two. They covered their feet and they cried out one to another. Loving, loving, loving is the Lord God almighty. That's not what it says. They cried out one to another. What? Holy, holy, holy. Holiness is God's absolute moral purity. So we used to view God as high and lifted up as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6. And then when you're in the presence of a God who is high and lifted up and and absolute moral perfection, the only response to that is to do what Isaiah did and say, I am a man of unclean lips. You're aware of your own sin. Woe is me. And, and this is why people always, they, in the presence of God, you go flat on your face, hoping you live. You see, because he's holy. But we have shifted. We have shifted to a new psychological world in which God is not only imminent, he's not only close, but he is just loving. Earlier, um, Wells says, we have come now to view God as our therapist. Uh, we, we simply want a God who will come close, who will walk softly, who will touch gently, who will come to uplift, assure, comfort, and guide. We want our God to be accepting and non-judgmental. But all judgment has been given unto the Son, and we will stand. There is a judgment. If you're a believer... Uh, you won't be at the great white throne judgment because you're in Christ. Uh, The judgment that should have come upon us was put on Christ, you see. But there is judgment. Don't judge me. How many times do we hear that? Quit judging me. Okay. Fine. Uh, the, The unpardonable sin in our culture is for someone to judge you. But you cannot avoid judgment. You either turn to Christ or you're at the great white throne judgment. Um, And then he goes on and he says this. This is now our view of God. He said, what does this have to do with? Oh, just hold on. He said, second, we are now thinking of ourselves in terms not of human nature, but of the self. And the self is simply an internal core of intuitions. It is the place where our own unique biography and gender and ethnicity and life experience all come together in a single center of self-consciousness. So there was a congressman recently, and he was caught in a situation, I think, at a gay bar, and he'd, you know, been on the other side of the spectrum and, you know, had to do the press conference and came out and said that he was now a homosexual. And, And he said, this is my truth. This is my truth. Well, what does that mean? That means it's his truth. It comes from within him. You see? Uh, Every self is unique because no one else has exactly the same set of personal factors, Wells writes. It's no surprise that we are now inclined to see life, to understand what is true, to think of right and wrong in uniquely individual ways. 
We each have our own perspective on life and its meaning, and each perspective is as valid as any other. And none of it is framed by absolute moral norms. This is where the overwhelming majority of Americans live, and I would submit, and Wells does the same thing, it's where the overwhelming majority of evangelical Christians live. Because we're products of the culture. And we have been conformed to the world rather than transformed. Romans 12. See, this is what we are told. As we come to Christ, now we're to grow in Christ. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, watch this, by the renewing of your mind. As I come to know Christ, I've been born again. Now the issue is to grow in Christ, and I'm to grow up. How do I grow in Christ? I've got to feed on the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There is, there is, there is truth. I'm to put the truth of God in my heart and mind, and I am now to live according to God's truth. So my perspective completely changes. Um, so we find ourselves in an interesting place in our culture. And many of us as Christians, we find ourselves in an interesting place because it, is it not somewhat harsh to say real men don't commit adultery? Is it not somewhat harsh to say real men don't sleep around? Is that not somewhat judgmental? And the, the only answer I can come up with is yes, it is. But I'm not the one who came up with it. May I show you who came up with it? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, if you would, please. In Exodus chapter 20, we find uh, historically what is known as the Ten Suggestions. <laughs> Not that they need, they're just, they're just the kind of coaching tips. Not that, not that you don't have your own truth. I say that tongue in cheek. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. We like to make our own gods. And it's just not a Buddha in the backyard. It can be anything. A child can become an idol. A career can become an idol. A certain level of career achievement can become an idol. All kinds of idols. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Oh my God! Do you really mean that? When you say, oh my God, or is it just a phrase you throw out? Now, if you're, if you're calling on God, oh my God, see, there's two ways to do that. It's, there's one way that's on the heart, and there's another one that's just a trite phrase that everyone says. See, we need to be very, very careful how we use the name of God because he's God and because he's holy and he's to be in awe. We, we are to be in awe of him. So I'm careful how I use his name, you see, very careful. He's my father, but he is due all the respect that I can muster. Remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, verse 8. Uh, in the New Testament, 
The Sabbath day changed because Jesus was resurrected on Sunday instead of Saturday. The day of worship for Christians changed, but the Sabbath rest remains. We can't go 24-7. Your work can't be all your life. God wants you to enjoy life, to take a day, whatever day works for you. You see, the principle still remains. Verse 12, honor your father and mother. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. There it is in black and white. You shall not commit adultery. 15, you shall not steal. 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. That's interesting. When was the last time you heard a sermon on that? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Note this. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. God's very direct. Um, let's go to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. See, when you covet your neighbor's wife, you're thinking about her, you're fantasizing about her, what would it be like to be with her, all that. God says, no. No. Mm-mm. It's not what I want for you. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, writing to the Christians at Thessalonica, verse 2 you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. You ever pray and ask God to show you his will? Sure you do. I just want to know your will. And a lot of times when we pray that, we're thinking about decisions we have to make and lead my steps and guide my steps. There are certain times in scripture, five or six clear times where we read, this is the will of God, this is the will of God, this is the will of God. Here's one of them. Um, Verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And sanctification just means that you're set apart. Because these are Christian people. They've come to know Christ. They've been redeemed. They've been set apart. Be ye holy as I am holy, God says. I want my life to be lived out in your life. The righteousness of Christ, which has been transferred to you, I want you to now live out that. Uh, Let him who steals, Ephesians says, steal no longer. So if you were a shoplifter before you come to know Christ, because Christ is now in you and you have a new heart and you have a new mind and you're not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, guess what's going to happen? You're going to quit shoplifting and you're going to start working and earning your way. See, it affects our behavior because of what's happened in our hearts. Make sense? Sure it does. In other words, there's going to be fruit in your life because Christ has come into your life. Uh, so when we're sanctified, we're set apart. We're set apart to live our lives to the glory of God. Not how we used to live, but now we're new men in Christ. So he says, by the way, when you get your check uh, from work, when you get your paycheck, do you just go through the drive through and cash it and start spending money? No, you don't. What you do, you sanctify that money. Uh, or your wife has. One of you sanctifies the money. Because you got a budget. You got to pay so much for housing. You got to pay so much for um, insurance. You got to pay so much for taxes. You got to pay so much for food. You say, well, that's called a budget. That's right. And when you budget your money, you've sanctified it. You've set apart this much for housing, this much for doctors, this much for um, uh, restaurants, this much for tuition. 
when you budget, you sanctify. It means to set apart. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you, watch this, abstain from sexual immorality. Not that you dabble in it, but that you abstain. Now, I, I read this because is this not crystal clear? It is crystal clear. This doesn't fly in our culture. This is not popular in our culture. But it's the word of God from God on high. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, your own body, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So when a Christian gets into sexual immorality, and instead of listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Instead of putting the brakes on and responding, when you continue to go against the Spirit of God as a believer and wander in paths of sexual immorality you shouldn't wander into, you're going to have a Hebrews 12 experience, which means the Father is going to discipline you. Just as you discipline your boy when he's going down a trail and you say, I don't want you doing that, I don't want you going there, there are ramifications, and good dads follow through. And we're not always consistent. Our Father is consistent. And you read Hebrews 12, and, and you're a believer, and you're following Christ, and you go down the wrong trail instead of following Christ. What Psalm 23, verse 3 says, He leads me, um, um, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And instead of following Christ in the path of righteousness that He wants me to walk, if I start heading here or over here in terms of sexual exploits and all of this, I'm going to get disciplined. Because he loves me, just as you love your boy and you love your girl, and you will discipline them to train them and to teach them. And to those, it goes on and says in Hebrews 12, who have been trained by it, by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You see, we've got to learn to follow him. Okay. All right. But is it not clear this is the will of God? It is very clear. Okay. So as, and again, this is not how we live become, before we come to know Christ. But now that we have come to know Christ, we're on a different path. We're following the shepherd. Our eyes are opened. We see things we didn't see before. Now I want to walk with him. Now I want my life to count. I want to be a leader of my family. I want to be, uh, as Paul told Timothy, he said, watch over your doctrine and your life. I want to believe the right things, and I want those right things to come out in my behavior. We weren't concerned with that before we came to know Christ, but now we are. Last week, we talked about saving the boys. How do you save the boys? You save the boys not only by teaching your boys, but by living out the truth in front of your boys. And we're all flawed men. And we still struggle with sin. So this is a battle, is it not? Yeah, it's a battle. But there's forgiveness with the Lord. We fall short. What do we do? We confess our sin. We admit it to him. If, you conf if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you just keep going, following Christ. Okay? All right. Um. God's men are told not to commit adultery. But we live in a culture that says adultery is okay. In fact, anything is okay. 
Anything goes, anything's okay, as long as it's your truth. We are, we are so far away from God that we are utterly and totally confused and we're wandering in a pathless waste. Are we not? Uh, we haven't looked at Job 12 for several weeks, so let's go back to Job 12. This will help a lot of you guys. Because some of you guys watched some stuff on TV last night you should have not watched. And you've been upset all night. You've been upset all day. Uh, that's what you get for watching so much Super Bowl coverage. That's a little joke, guys. And later on, when someone hears this, they won't have a clue what I'm talking about. But you know what I'm talking about. Uh, In Job 12, we read in verse 23, He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nation, then leads them away. Why does he do that? Because they erode from within. They erode from within. They lose their moral base. It happened to Israel. It happened to Judah. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nation, then leads them away. Watch this. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people. And he makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like a drunken man. You say they're taking this nation away. You say they're taking over. They're not taking over. We've been given over. And God's behind it. Never has it been so critical for men to be the spiritual leaders of their family in a day where everything is falling apart and the foundations are being destroyed. One of the reasons I don't go to the movies is that you got to sit there for 20 minutes and watch the trailers, which is an assault to the heart and mind and soul. Let alone it'll destroy your hearing. It was interesting because one of the trailers, when we went to see, uh, what's the movie called? Lone Survivor. First one was on Noah. There's this new movie coming out on Noah. I mean, just the trailer was incredible. Just destruction. And then, all right, so coming soon. This preview approved for little children to freak them out at night. And then the next one was some, I think Schwarzenegger was in this movie. And it's some other, and these bad guys and all this. And then there's all this destruction, and there's this. And it's like the book of Revelation. And then the next trailer, and I leaned over to Mary, and I said, is this still the movie, uh, the trailer for Noah? Because it's all the same. All these movies are about destruction, destruction, destruction. I find that really interesting. Why is that? Because I think down, down deep, we all know that's where we're going. If we keep going the way we're going, this is where we're going. You see. One of the things we're watching right now, and and guys, uh, one of my motivations for going back through this, I mentioned that 
it dawned on me over Christmas. I really, as central as this work was that I wrote 25 years ago to my life and to my ministry, and I go out on the weekends and I teach the concepts of men being spiritual leaders of their family, I've never taught it here consecutively ever. And I thought, well, why don't I do it here? So I'm doing it. And the reason I'm doing it is that when I wrote this 25 years ago, there was a need, but the need is so much greater than it has ever been. These are timeless principles for men. And if leadership was needed from godly men 25 years ago, how much more is it needed now? The guys I was aiming to at that point were 30, 35, 40. Now we're the grandpas. And the culture continues to deteriorate. So our leadership has never been more strategic and more important. Just think about marriage and what children are being taught in this culture, what, what we are being inundated with, with messages that are contrary. Um, marriage, what's marriage? We got ideas floating around about marriage that are just beyond, beyond comprehension. All these different views. I have my truth on marriage. God invented marriage. God owns marriage. He has the copyright on marriage and he has the patent on marriage. Marriage belongs to him. When God instituted marriage, it was covenant marriage. Allow me to quote from, again from Andreas Kostenberger in his book, God, Marriage and Family. He says, if the marriage covenant is, de is defined as a sacred bond instituted by and public publicly entered into before God, whether or not this is acknowledged by the married couple, and it is normally consummated by sexual intercourse, we submit that embracing the marriage covenant concept means that a couple must understand and commit to at least the following five things. And you say, marriage covenant? Yeah. Uh, I'll give you Proverbs 2, verses 16 through 17. You can look them up later. I'll give you Ezekiel 16, 8. And let's go ahead and look at uh, Malachi 2.14. Say, now, why do we want to do this? Well, how many of you guys are husbands? Let me see your hands. Okay, to be a husband means you're married. What does it mean to be married? Well, we got all these definitions. Well, God says it's covenant, so go to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2. And take a look at verse 14. The Lord is disciplining them severely. Verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Covenant. Okay. You have many covenants in the scripture, but a covenant always involves two parties. Now, here's what's interesting. When, um, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave, adhere to his wife, and the two shall become what? One. All right, so this is interesting. So you and your wife become one. So by the fact that you're one, you need another person to make a covenant. Who's the other person? Almighty God. Is that not interesting? So this is marriage by covenant. Uh, Kostenberger says, 
there are five things that are understood by, the, by marriage covenant. Number one, the permanence of marriage. Marriage is to be permanent. What a foreign idea in this culture. And again, I want to say this very quickly, and I got an email from a guy today who has uh, been through some very, very difficult times in some evangelical churches because he's divorced. And what's difficult for this guy is that uh, he didn't want the divorce. His wife did. But he has been swept out because he's divorced. That doesn't seem right to me. Uh, We've said all the... um, We used to have... we, We used to have things built into marriage where you just couldn't divorce. And now those are all removed, so it's easier to fire an employee. Now I take it back. I always get that wrong. See, it should be easier to fire an employee than it should be to divorce your spouse. But it's not. It's easier to divorce a spouse than it is to fire an employee. So we got guys here. So if your wife wants out, there's not a cotton-picking thing you can do to stop her. Nothing. This is what happened to this guy who sent me the email. Well, and he is treated in evangelical Bible churches as though he's the one that wanted the divorce. He didn't want it. He couldn't stop it. You see, marriage is to be permanent. Here's number two. And, and I'll give you Matthew 19.6 and Mark 10.9 on that. Second idea of a covenant marriage is that marriage is sacred. It's just not a contract. Um, this is why there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. Because God created the woman, and let's turn to Genesis 2. God created the woman and brought her to the man. And is it not remarkable that we even have to define this stuff? We wouldn't have been doing this 30 years ago. But how quickly do things go downhill. Verse 22 of Genesis 2. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which she had taken from the man and he brought her to the man. This is in the context of marriage. Adam was alone. Uh, He fashions the woman. He brings her to the man. So in the context of marriage, verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, this is not a diatribe against those that are in homosexuality. Um, they need the Lord. As we all do. Maybe that's something you've never dealt with. You've never had those temptations. That's the grace of God. Uh, some guys have those struggles. Other guys, their struggle would be heterosexual. I remember a few years ago, a guy who was a pretty well-known Christian singer uh, suddenly came out and announced that he was pursuing the gay lifestyle because all his life he had dealt with homosexual temptation. And in essence, and I read his, his, um, I guess, press release, for lack of a better term. He said, I'm just tired of fighting. I'm just tired of the fight of dealing with these temptations. Well, listen, I'm tired of fighting heterosexual temptation. 
I can be driving down a road minding my own business and see a girl jogging 184 yards away and I'm screwed up for the next hour. (laughs) You do know what I'm talking about, don't you? And don't you ever get tired of that? I remember having a conversation in the last couple of years with the man and the woman, and this gal, you know, goes to this, you know, such and such Bible church. She's got this low cut thing on and hanging free. I think she went to Boo Bible Church. I can't remember what it was. But I'm telling you what, man, it was all I could do to keep my eyes on her eye. I mean, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Oh, yeah, I get it. I understand. Sure, that's a great concept. Oh, that's really good. And I mean, that was for an hour and a half. I mean, you talk about a struggle. Oh, it was exhausting. I was missed up the rest of the day. So what do I do? I'm just tired of dealing with the fight, so I'm just going to go all in and sleep around. That doesn't make any sense. Christ hasn't called me to that. The man said, when God presented the woman, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. There is no marriage other than male and female marriage. You can can call it whatever you want, but it doesn't exist. It's a figment of your imagination. Be joined to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, the next point on covenant marriage is that covenant marriage is intimate. Not just sexually, but it's the two become one. It's a mystical union. I'm not going to say much on that. Let me give you the next two. There is the mutuality of marriage. Um, it's where you give yourself to another. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You don't live for yourself. You're living for another. This is what happens when you have kids. You're not just living for yourself. Now you're going to be a servant. And, and a good marriage is comprised of two people who are trying to outserve each other. Not compete. Not duel. Outserve each other. Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. Uh, among two equals in the marriage relationship... Both made in the image of God, that's in Genesis. God has called and appointed the husband to leadership. Not to be an authoritarian, not to be a dictator, not to be dominant, dominating and squelching his wife, but to love her as Christ loved the church. To be a husband is to take care. Not to take off, not to take advantage, but to take care. That's what it is. Okay? But we are responsible as men for the family, and for the marriage relationship. Okay. Uh, The last one is the exclusiveness of marriage. Uh, That means that no other human relationship must enter in and put a wedge between the husband and the wife. This is covenant marriage. Okay. Now, here's what's interesting. And I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. So why is it that so many Christian men get pulled into adultery? We see it all the time. If I go in, to go, I go somewhere to do a conference, 
And uh, this usually happens to me, not every time, but many times if I'm talking with a pastor or having lunch or have some time with some guys, it'll usually surface that in recent weeks or in the last year or we got a group of guys from this church and it's, it's really been heartbreaking in our community because this prominent pastor in this, who is a wonderful preacher of God's word, um, went off the deep end and left his wife and kids and is taken up with this woman. I hear this constantly. I hear it constantly. Listen, if 25 years ago they were doing surveys that showed that 30% of pastors admit to some kind of inappropriate relationship with a woman, not necessarily physical, but emotional, where are we today? That's just pastors. You see, you would expect them to have a higher standard because they do have a higher standard. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because teachers incur a stricter, here's that favorite word, judgment. Well, I don't want to be judged. Well, you teach, you're going to be judged. So you better be careful how you teach and you better be careful how you live. God wants there to be congruency between what I teach and how I live my life. So here we are, we're guys, we're just trying to follow the Lord. We're inundated with these images. We're just, we're, we're, we are just bulldozed by all this wrong information and this stuff. They email it to us and they hide the links. We don't even know. It's just unbelievable. Our, our, our sons are dealing with this stuff. Um, And we've all seen situations where guys just suddenly, it seems like suddenly just go off the deep end and suddenly they're into adultery. How does that happen? I want to talk about this for a little bit as we wrap this up tonight. Because you see, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this old hymn. We don't sing it much anymore. But there used to be a hymn called Rise Up, O Men of God. Some of you guys remember that. Rise up, O men of God. I, I want to suggest that we, uh, tonight we do wise up, O men of God. Because, now track with me here. Now you're serious about following Christ. You're not just a church guy, you're a Jesus guy. You love Christ. You want to follow him. You want to know him. You, you want to you grow in his word and grow in grace you're done with that old life. You, you really want him to mature you and grow you in Christ. Know this, there's a target on your back. Because when you get serious about Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. And what he wants to do is he wants to neutralize you and keep you from leading. That's what he wants to do. So he's going to try and ambush you just as he tries to ambush the guy on point and those behind him. Because we're in spiritual battle. Okay. Uh, I, I would make a, a, a couple of observations. Um, make, make sure your thinking is biblical and not worldly thinking. And when I say that, when I say that, I mean this in regard to this subject. How does a guy get caught into adultery? Well, first of all, we don't even call it adultery. 
We don't even use the term. God says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. We, we, we don't even use that word anymore. We use the word affair. An affair. It's sort of a, adultery is a little harsh, don't you think? Uh, affair. Affair. Kind of a light word. Kind of airy. Has a little wisp to it. An affair. You know, when I was a kid, I used to go to affair. Every year, my family would go to the Kern County Fair. And the best definition of an affair I've ever heard comes from Dennis Rainey. Dennis says that an affair is an escape from reality or a search for fulfillment outside the marriage. That's profound. Okay? What is an affair? It's an escape from reality or a search for meaning outside the marriage, okay? We go to a fair. And you know what was neat? When we go to the fair, I could eat anything I wanted. I could have cotton candy, and then my dad would let me have another cotton candy because we are at a fair. And the normal rules by which we lived and normal principles were kind of suspended because we were at a fair. And it was completely different on the day at the fair than any other day in my life. And there were Ferris wheels, and we played games, and we did this. It was all about having fun. That's why we went to a fair. God never calls violating your marriage vows. He never calls it an affair. He calls it adultery. And that's because it's very, very serious. Um, part of our culture is we use doublespeak. We don't call things what they are. Uh, when I was writing Point Man, I found a quote from um, a guy named R Richard Saul Worman. I had never heard of him before. I haven't heard of him since. And, and now I, I cannot find... Give me a second. He says, double speak is one of the biggest problems in the English language, according to the National Council of Teachers. They cited the following examples. One stockbroker called the 1987 stock market crash a fourth quarter equity retreat. <laughs> he has a bunch of them here. A recent publication claimed that jumping off a building could lead to sudden deceleration trauma. God doesn't, miss a, God doesn't play games like this. He just comes out and says what it is. Um, once again, I've got too much stuff. Let me say this. Know this. Number one, real men will be tempted to commit adultery. You will be tempted, you have been tempted, and you will be tempted again. It's how we're wired. Sin still lives within us. And we have to battle this. We have to battle these temptations. Um, let me give you a principle. How is it that a Christian guy gets pulled? Well, listen. If a gal walked into your office 
disrobed in front of you and said, have sex with me on the floor. You'd be shocked. And that wouldn't be real alluring. And you probably wouldn't have a lot of temptation to go ahead and fulfill it. It's too overt. See, Satan in his temptation is not overt. He's subtle. This is why we ask the question, how does a guy fall sexually? A Christian guy. Usually, and here, here's a key. Usually a guy falls emotionally before he falls sexually. Know that the enemy will try to get you through your emotion first. Okay? You know, when I was a young pastor, I had a couple came to know the Lord. And they were just, I mean, rookies. They didn't know anything. Neither one had a Christian background. So they wanted to meet with me, this couple, on a regular basis. And they came in and... Uh, we met a couple times, then one day the wife showed up and her husband was called out of town on a business deal. And it was a little strange because it was just her. And we talked a little bit and cut the session short. And then, and she was, you know, cute gal, uh, great personality. And, well, we'll meet next week, you know, and he'll be back, great. She calls me the next week. That day, and she said he was called out of town to get on this project, so I'm not going to come in to meet. And I said, Well, that's fine. Let's let me know. He may be on this for a while. Well, why don't we just wait till the project's done and then we'll pick it up? Great. I hung up the phone. I was disappointed she wasn't coming in. And I was kind of shocked by that. I had to think about that for a minute. I said, What's this about? I got a great wife. We got a great relationship, great physical relationship. What the heck is this about? Well, it's the enemy trying to get a wedge into my life. And it kind of shook me. In fact, it shook me so much that about 15 minutes later, I left the office and I went home. And I walked in and Mary said, what are you doing here? I said, I got to talk to you. And she just put Rachel down for a nap, a little baby girl, and see, God wanted to destroy my family. And I said, well, let me tell you just what happened, Mary. And she knew this couple. We'd had dinner with them. And there was nothing. Nothing had happened. Nothing was said. Nothing. nothing. It was just simply I was aware of something inside of me. And I told Mary what happened. And she said, Steve, it makes sense. She's attractive. She's cute. She's very winsome. Yeah but I'm so glad you told me. Now, why did I tell her? Because I don't trust myself and I don't trust my own heart. See, I didn't want Mary, let me put it this way. I wanted her to know what was in my heart. And I told her, I said, look, I love you with everything I have. I made a vow to you. I am happy. I am thrilled. But this scared me. I learned a lesson from that. A few years later, I was uh, meeting with a guy. You guys got five more minutes? I'm meeting with a guy. He and his wife showed up at our church, three or four kids. Turned out he was an executive with a big-time Fortune 500 company. Left that to take a CEO position at a Christian ministry. Big, huge salary cut. 
And they had moved in the area looking for a church, and hey, let's have coffee sometime. So a few weeks later, having lunch with the guy. And as we're uh, having lunch, and then we're in my car, driving, my van driving back to his office to drop him off, just in conversation, he mentioned a book on marriage that he'd been reading. I said, I read that book, it's excellent. He goes, yeah, did you read this? Yeah, I said, I remember that very well. That, that's, that's just on target. And he goes, yeah, that book is, he said, I'm actually studying that book with a friend. I said, yeah, I can see why. And then he said, that book has helped me so much in my relationship with my wife, and it's helped my friend in her relationship with her husband. And, you know, I was thinking he was meeting with a guy, but he was meeting with a girl, a gal, a woman. I have a real uh, sophisticated approach to counseling. If I see a scab, I, I pick it. Uh, and uh, so I said, you mind if I ask you a personal question? And he said, go ahead. They, if you ask for permission, they always give you permission. I've never had someone say, no, you can't ask me a personal question. So I said, can I ask you a personal question? He goes, yeah. I said, so you meet with this gal and you study, how often you study? He goes, once a week. I said, how long have you been doing this? He goes, oh, several months. I said, have you kissed her yet? And he goes, what? I said, have you kissed her yet? He goes, you're coming on pretty strong. I said, well, you said I could ask you a personal question, but you haven't answered. He didn't like that. I said, look, I'm no prophet, and I'm not the son of a prophet, but I'm going to tell you something. You keep meeting with that woman, and you're going to be in the sack with her in about, within weeks. And I'll never forget, we were in the van, and there was a gap between the two seats. I'll never forget him in the chair going, that'll never happen, that'll never happen, that'll never happen. And a couple of months later, he left his wife and kids. She left her husband and kids. By the way, when we're in the van, I'd already offended the guy. I figured one more couldn't hurt. <laughs> this is true. I said, hey, uh, that gal you're meeting with to study the book on marriage. Can I take a stab at who it is? He said, you don't know her. I said, when I walked in, there was a really striking gal at that desk in front of your office. Beautiful. Great figure. Very winsome. Is that your Bible study, friend? It was. Working in Christian ministry. Furthering the kingdom of God. He never intended when he made that move and when he took that position. I don't think he, I know he didn't intend for that to happen. But he got ambushed. I've seen better men than me go down. I've seen many men better than me go down. Some of you guys have gone down. You know what's interesting? There are guys in here, you've been, you have not committed adultery, but you've been the recipients of adultery through your wife. That's devastating. Some of you guys in here have committed adultery, and now what you're trying to do is you're trying to get your life back in, you were ambushed and you were picked off by the enemy. Some of the most teachable guys I've ever met have been through this, and they never want to go through it again. God bless you. I've done this, Steve. What do I do? You run to Christ in repentance and brokenness. He will not despise you. He will not reject you. You come clean and there's forgiveness in Christ. But now it's going to take time to rebuild trust because you've lost trust. Just know this. Years ago, I was doing a marriage conference. 
a couple were waiting for me. They said, do you have any time? I said, I got to leave for the airport in an hour. We sit down in the coffee shop and the guy said, let me cut to the chase. I probably told you the story before. He said, let me cut to the chase, Steve. He said, uh, I committed adultery with a gal in my office. Uh, I have confessed it. I've acknowledged it. Uh, I had her leave. She's found other employment. I have no contact with her. I've done this and this and this. And he said, my, the problem is my, my wife doesn't trust me. His wife's sitting right there. And I looked at her and she said, that's true, I don't. Because this is the third time this has happened. And this guy wants to meet and this guy's real aggressive because she won't trust. And, and, and she says, yeah, I, that's true, I don't trust him. It's the third time this has happened now. I looked at him and I said, look it, I'm gonna cut to the chase because I don't have much time. I don't even know you and I don't trust you. <laughs> And let me tell you something, if the roles were reversed here and this has happened three times on her side, you wouldn't be sitting here trusting her either. So let's get this on, and and I gotta tell you something. I'm concerned, you told me that this had happened, you mentioned one time, it's happened three times. You haven't come clean. Why did you withhold that information? See, that causes me not to trust you. I don't think you were forthcoming. I have no problem with your wife not trusting you. Your problem is you're in trust deficit. Now, three times this has happened. Well, I want to get trust back, all right? I said, I don't know your heart. I'm going to assume this is genuine. Only the Lord knows. So let's say it's genuine. Then you know what you do? You stay clean. You knock this stuff off and you follow Christ and you die to yourself and you love your wife and you deny your your feelings and your impulses and you get disciplined and controlled under the Spirit of God and get some accountability. But this cannot happen again. And you need to stay clean for seven years. I just pulled it out of my head. It sounded biblical. <laughs> and then, because you're in trust deficit, man, here, here's zero. Here's the plus column. You're back here. You're like the federal government. <laughs> so you stay clean for seven years, and then you'll be at zero. And then you can begin to put points in the surplus column. I said, you can get there. It's going to take time. And don't put demands on her to trust you because you've not been trustworthy. So be trustworthy. I don't know what happened. I'm going to tell you this. Most guys, that's too, I'm going to be honest with you. In my experience, that's too big a mountain to climb. I've seen a lot of guys talk it, but very few guys actually implement it. But I've seen guys implement it. And I've seen them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. And I'm going to tell you what, I have seen, not a lot of guys, but I've seen guys that have decided I'm getting all in with Jesus and I'm going to follow him. And I'm going to confess my sin and I'm going to start watching my thinking and I'm going to start controlling my thoughts and I'm going to get with some guys and share my heart with them. And I'm, they got serious. And I got to tell you something, the transformation has been Radical. Radical. And to watch those guys and to watch the blessing of God replace the discipline of God has been remarkable. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. Jesus can redeem you 
and he can change you and he can make you a trustworthy man as you pursue him with all your heart. That's what he does. He's the savior. We fix our eyes on him. So Jesus, we pray that you would help us. We thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for sending your son to die on our behalf. This is such a huge subject. We get overwhelmed, Lord, sometimes with the temptation. And and Lord, when we get overwhelmed, we we just call out to you. We, We want to glorify you. We don't want to live for ourselves. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you. But you've got to help us, Lord. We're weak men. We're weak. But you've said that when we're weak, then you'll make us strong. So we call out to you for help. We call out to you that you would help us to discipline our thoughts and replace those images with the word of God. Give us what we need, Lord, and sometimes we're not even sure what we need, but would you help us? Would you rescue us? Would you save us? Would you redeem us? There are guys in here who were slaves to this stuff who've been set free and now minister to other guys. Do that for each man, I pray. We have nowhere else to go except you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.